So uh, we started something a while back ago called Questionable. Questionable. And we started that, Jan and I started that when uh, we were in youth ministry. And we discovered there were a lot of questions that uh, certain people were just too embarrassed to ask and they wanted to stay anonymous. And so what we did with our church just a little while ago is we started printing on your bulletin. Uh, you've got some notes here to take, but it also says, please fill out this information and put it in the offering box. Oh, wait, that's, that's not the question. That's, if you, that's another advertisement right there. If you would like to be a part of our email list, uh, when I'm doing series other than Summer in the Psalms, I send out weekly devotionals with that, and also typically uh, announcements. You won't get them these next two weeks because I'll be gone, but uh, you'll get announcements there. Uh, but on the other side of the bulletin, not this side, on the other side, it talks about uh, if, you, if you have a question you'd like to ask. A lot of times uh, during a sermon, a question will pop up in your mind, and you'll be like, man, I'd love to talk about that, and then you forget it. Well, now you just write it down on your paper, you rip that off, you put it in the, in the offering box in the back, and eventually, I'll get around to answering it. Today is one of those days. So all that leads into, today is one of those days, and this is an awesome question. I love this question. Once again, they're anonymous. You are free to ask any question you want. Uh, we've gotten a couple others, but they're usually from Jen, and they're questions like, why are you so good looking? And I have to say, Jen... I just, that's not something I feel comfortable answering, so uh, I'm actually getting embarrassed. I can't believe I brought that up. I'm getting embarrassed right now. But this question is a good one. This isn't a gen question. This is a good question. And it says, if we are tempted by our own desires, James 1, 14 through 15, what role does the devil play in the temptation of mankind? So that's a great question. Uh, in order to answer it, I think we should look up James 1, 14 through 15. So I'll read that really quickly. And this is a great uh, piece of scripture. I think everybody should, should read it at least one time and kind of apply it to our lives. Let no one say, sorry, I'm backing up to 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So that's the context, right? There are some people that might say, I'm being tempted by God. He's saying, no, that's not the case. No one is tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So whenever you are tempted, it is not God's fault. And I don't think that's the only point James is going to drive home here. He's going to drive home a couple other points. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives or brings forth death. So... Here is, the, here is the point James is making, is you are responsible for your sin. You can't blame anyone else. You can't blame God. You can't blame the devil. It's not the devil made me do it. It's not someone else's fault. Oftentimes we hear this phrase, and I bring this up a lot, of that person made me so angry. Well, that person didn't make you angry. You have anger in your heart, and that person gave you the correct context in which you could let that anger out. That person just helped you reveal your anger. So that's the whole point, is there's this personal responsibility for sin. But the other part of the, of the question is, what role does the devil play? So if, if it is my own desire that brings forth sin, what role does the devil play? And we can see that it's my own desire. All scripture points to our personal responsibility for sin. 
Anytime you see in Scripture someone pointing to someone else for their own sin, uh, that person is always wrong. So we start off right away with Adam and Eve. You know, the original sin, Eve takes a bite of the apple, she rebels against God's word, then she passes it on to Adam, Adam takes a bite of the apple, rebels against God's word, God comes and confronts, and what does Adam say? Well, it's her fault. And what does God say? Oh, you're right, Adam. I'm so sorry. Let me just deal with Eve. You're good to go. Just just go have a free pass. No. Adam still has to deal with his personal responsibility for sin. And it starts off through there, and then that, that theme will trace all the way through the entire Bible. There's no way we can blame someone else for our sin. We always bear personal responsibility for sin. So then, what does the devil have to play? Well, Revelation, I'm going to go through a couple verses. We can't go through everything just for the sake of time. But Revelation 12.9 says that uh, Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. So we see this is one of, the way, one of the roles that Satan plays within our own temptation, is that he is a deceiver. How does he deceive? He, help, he just kind of guides us in our temptation. So he knows, he knows our desire, and what's the lie that he's going to help tra- you trade for the truth of God's word? Because that's always where, where we go for sin, right? We're trading God's truth for a lie that we believe. Well, he helps in that lie. Whatever the lie may be. But he knows your desire, and oftentimes the desire is just to be our own God. And he sells that to us. So it's not his fault. He's just tweaking that desire, right? Satan, just the term Satan means the accuser or the adversary. So he is our accuser. And that's part of the lie, is he wants us to... to, feel our shame. He wants us to be stuck in the sin-shame cycle. And he's our adversary. He's our accuser. So he's constantly telling us that we don't deserve God's love, that God could never love someone like you, or it's you're a gift to God. You're better than God. So those are some of the, the voices that we have in our ear but it is always playing on that desire. Ephesians 4.26 then also says, Be angry, but don't sin. Give no opportunity for the devil. All right, so what does Satan's role play? Well, I think, number one, we can say that Satan is not all of the omnis, right? So he's not all-powerful, he's not all-knowing. I don't think Satan can actually read your mind. Satan can't be multiple places at once. Satan, Satan can only be one place at one time. And you know what? Most of us in this congregation aren't drawing the attention of Satan. Satan's got bigger fish to fry than me and you. But there are demonic influences that we can let infiltrate and influence us when we give in to sin. So the commandment here is to be angry. So, so we're not entirely, you know, we could go into the context, I, we won't go all the way into the context, but there are times when there is righteous anger. When it is okay to be angry. When you see someone getting abused, if you're not angry, you're calloused and numb. So it's okay to be angry sometimes. 
But then the other part of the commandment is, but do not sin. And here it is, give no opportunity for the devil. So when we begin to sin, when we let that anger take root and fester and become bitterness, then there's demonic influences that can take root into our lives. So I think if we continue through all the verses, uh, we would find that Satan is the originator of all sin. And all sin can be traced back to Satan, who is the originator of, of sin. But the cause of our personal sin is our own desire. So then, what is the solution? The question didn't actually ask for the solution, but I think it would be irresponsible for me to kind of paint this picture and not give a solution. So what is the solution? I think the solution is to submit our desires to God. Now, there are a lot of good desire, but even a good desire can become an idol, and then that can produce sin. So what do I need to do? I personally need to su submit all of my desire to God. So, for example, I love my kids. I want to see my kids grow up to be good, godly people, people who love God. I think every single parent, that is our wish, that is our desire for our kid. But what happens when that desire becomes my chief, foremost desire? Then my children start to become an idol. And actually their behavior becomes an idol. And then I start falling into legalism. And we start to see us go down the road of falling into sin, right? So what is my solution? My solution isn't to get rid of my desire to have my kids grow up to be godly people. My, the solution then is to submit my desire to God and to trust my children to God. So when we submit our desires to God and trust our lives with God, then that helps curb, curb the sin that we are tempted with our own desires, and the lies that Satan sells us to believe those desires. But that wasn't the sermon. Uh, we're going to get into Psalm 106 now. And speaking of sin, sin is a heavy weight. It is a heavy burden to bear. Oftentimes, Christians don't take sin very seriously. We understand God's grace. We understand God's gift. But we, and we understand that other people's sin are really offensive. It's easy for us to look at someone else's sin and think, that's disgusting. But we grow in our own sin, and we get kind of used to the stench of our own sin. And so it's no longer disgusting for us. Jen and I have a, somebody remodeled our bathroom before we bought it. And they switched the, where the shower is with where the toilet is. Now, if you don't know much about plumbing... The toilet, because it has its own P-trap, uh, it doesn't have another P-trap going into the actual pipes, whereas the shower has a P-trap. Now, if you don't know anything about P-traps, P-traps catch water. The water then keeps the gases from flowing back into your house. But because somebody switched the toilet and the shower drains without putting in a P-trap to where the new shower would be, Guess what comes into our bathroom all the time? The stench of our septic system. Now that stinks. I can see some faces making, yeah, it, it really stinks. 
It stinks like something, and it doesn't quite hit the word. I can't get the word in my head right now, but it stinks like that. You know, it's bad. But what I've noticed is it's really bad during the summer. And it gets continually worse during the summer. But something else I've noticed is, I don't think Jen quite catches on to this, but, but with me in particular, during monsoon seasons, you know, the sep- their monsoons tough on septic systems. It starts to kind of make it even worse, but I also get used to the smell. So, like, I'm in the bathroom and, you know, I'm getting ready to take a shower. The, that stench is coming up. It's just as bad. If you walked into that bathroom, you'd be like, this is sick. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? I don't smell anything. Because I've gotten used to the stench. And that's the way our own sin is in our life. We get used to the stench because it's our sin. And so we don't realize how truly offensive our sin is to God. And because we don't realize how truly offensive our sin is, we don't quite take it seriously. Now, I take your sin seriously because I can smell your stench. You take mine seriously. We don't take our own very seriously. And as a result, sin is a heavy burden. And as a result, we like to pull around this heavy burden of sin. This is only 25 pounds. It's not that heavy. It's a kettlebell. Some people work out with it. My son can lift this up. I think even my two-year-old daughter can lift this up. I think I've actually, I know I have seen her lift this up. So it's not that heavy. 25 pounds, not that heavy. But carrying it around for a long time, it can become burdensome. And we carry around our stinky, stench-filled sin that is a burden. It is an emotional and spiritual burden, and it begins to drag us down. That's what we're going to talk about today with Psalm 106. So if you haven't turned there already, turn with me to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, just like Psalm 105, we're not entirely sure of the author, nor are we sure of the date, but we do know that it is a mirror image of Psalm 105. Psalm 105 last week gave us a history lesson, right? And throughout that history lesson, it talked about God's faithfulness, how God was continually faithful, how we see God's faithfulness, and how that kept us can keep us going. It kept the people in exile going. If you're not familiar with the term exile, The the Israelites had sinned so grossly against God, so absolutely horrific against God, that he raised up Babylon. Babylon comes in, they conquer Jerusalem, they destroy Jerusalem, and they take all of the Israelites back to Babylon. That's the period of the exile. It lasts 70 years. That is when this psalm was most likely written. It's along with Psalm 105. In order to encourage the Israelites in, in exile, Psalm 105 was written, talking about God's faithfulness. Psalm 106 is a mirror image, but instead of talking about, it's going to be a history lesson, but instead of talking about God's faithfulness, it's going to go through Israel's sin. So we'll start off with a call, a call to praise, and then it's going to move to a plea for God's mercy. And then it's going to be followed by a confession of sin. So it begins, praise the Lord. 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So even in the exile, even when all seems lost, the psalmist recognizes that God's steadfast love, steadfast love being a faithful, enduring, never-ending love for them, will endure forever. So they still acknowledge God's love, even if it's a difficult circumstance. There are times in our lives when we go through areas where God seems far off, where He seems distant. But we can read this and remind ourselves that even when God seems far off, even when He seems distant, He still loves us. His steadfast love is still there for us. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. So this term blessed, sometimes it means like if you're blessing someone, it means to invoke deity and deity's favor upon that person. But in this context, it means to be joyful. So it's saying joyful are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Essentially, joyful are those who obey. Contrast that with what the world promises for joy. What does the world constantly bombard us with? What's going to make us joyful? What's going to really make our, us happy? It's that new car, right? The new mountain bike. The new toy. The next trip to the beach. The next trip to the creek. That's the constant promise. And what we find is that does provide a fleeting glimpse of happiness, but it always ends quickly. It's just like Christmas Day. For the longest time in my life, Christmas Day was the worst day. And people will be shocked to hear that. But I hated Christmas because there was all this promise. And you open, you rip open your presents, right? Who doesn't enjoy to rip open a present? And you see this thing and you think this thing is going to make you happy and you're so excited about this awesome present that's going to make you happy. And then two hours later, what are you doing? Watching TV because you're bored with that present, right? And you realize that it doesn't make you happy. The world promises all these things that will make you happy, and yet all of these things fail and will ultimately disappoint. So what causes joy? What creates joy? It is obedience to God. The people who are obedient to God are going to be the ones that experience joy in any circumstance, in any condition. It doesn't matter how disappointing your Christmas present is. I've given some disappointing Christmas presents. I've seen the look on my wife's face when she opens the present. like, oh, great. But you can still have joy even if you never receive a present again. You can still have joy even in the worst of circumstances. So what is it that produces joy? It's obedience. And sometimes that obedience seems mind-numbingly boring. Sometimes that obedience seems torturous. And yet it is that obedience that in the end produces joy. Because it is following God's Word. So next is the plea for God's grace and mercy. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones. 
that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Notice the when, not if. This is a, a Israelite in exile, in a new land, a foreign land with foreign language, with foreign smell, with foreign food. Nothing is familiar. They are at the whim of the people who have conquered them. And he doesn't say if you show favor, but when. He is so sure of the favor God will show them. And then he goes on, and he confesses, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Now notice here that he doesn't blame others. It's not just saying, hey, they sinned. Why do we have to pay the price? My fathers were the ones that rebelled against you. Why am I paying right now? But he includes both us and them. Both we and our fathers. Too often we don't realize how offensive our sin is to God. We see the offense of others. We see how stench-filled their sin is. All the while justifying our sin. Not realizing that our sin is also a rotten stench to God. My sin is a rotten stench to God. And then he gives the history lesson, the confession. And this isn't in chronological order. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake. So he starts going into this uh, history lesson that they didn't remember God's faithfulness to Abraham. They didn't remember God's faithfulness to Isaac. They didn't remember God's faithfulness to Jacob, to Joseph. They didn't even remember all of the plagues that God just enacted to bring them out of Egypt. They forgot it immediately. So now they're standing at the Red Sea, and you've got the Egyptian army behind them. And what do they say? They say, great, God did all of that just to bring us out here to make us die. God's just going to kill us off right here. So right away, they rebel against God. And what does he do? He saves them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. So even though they rebelled, he still saved them because he is true to his promise. God made a promise to Abraham, and it was a unilateral promise saying, I am going to make you a great nation, I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to bless you, and I am going to bless the whole world through you, I am going to make it happen. That's what God told Abraham. And so because he made that promise, he stayed faithful and true to that promise. So he saves them for his namesake, and not just for his namesake only, but that the world might know his mighty power. He uses the Exodus and he uses the Red Sea so that all the world would know. Here he took this tiny little group of people and he brought them into Egypt. And, and through their time in Egypt, he grows them to be the size of a nation. But they were slaves. And then he brings them out and the whole world would hear about how the slaves defeated the greatest nation on earth at the time. In fact, all of the world will know and the Canaanites will be fearful because they'll know that the Israelites are coming and that because Yahweh is an amazing God. 
He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And He led them through the deep as through a desert. So He saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. So even though they were rebellious, He still saved them. Even though they were rebellious, He still made His mighty works known. And He totally demolishes Egypt. So this group of slaves defeat Egypt. Then they believed His words. They sang His praises. But that doesn't last long. Verse 13, but they soon forgot his works. Soon, it was only three days later. That's all it took. Throughout all the plagues, throughout the exodus, throughout the crossing of the Red Sea and the demolition of Egypt, three days later. How quickly do us all forget This is one of the reasons why it's important to constantly talk about and remind each other of the work that God has done in our lives. Because we forget. It's so easy to forget who we were before we submitted our life to God. It's so easy to forget who we were before the Holy Spirit indwelt us and began to change us from the inside out. I have to constantly remind myself, I was a selfish jerk. I'm still a selfish jerk, but not near as bad as I was. I just read a study recently about uh, how helpful it is for married couples to look back fondly on their first few years. And if you look back on your first few years and you talk fondly on your first few years, it actually helps produce contentment in your marriage later on. I think the same is very true when it comes to our relationship with God. If we don't constantly look back on that moment when God took a hold of our heart and began to change us, we'll forget what God did in our lives. And in all honesty, we'll think we're mature because of us. I'll think that I have patience because of me instead of God growing me through the circumstances I've been through. So how quickly do do we forget? They forgot. They did not wait for his counsel. As a result of them forgetting, they did not wait for his counsel. The result of us forgiving, forgetting is that we do not follow his counsel. We don't submit our lives to his word because we forget that it is his word that is maturing us and growing us and making us better people. But they had wanton cravings in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked Sorry, he gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease. 16 through 18 is a reference to Korah's rebellion. So when when men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. So Moses Moses wasn't the leader. Moses was the mouthpiece for God. But God was the leader. So their rebellion against Moses was really a rebellion against God. Because they wanted to be God. And that is the sin we all struggle with. That's part of giving into our desire. When I reject God's counsel for my own desire, it is me saying, God, I don't believe 
that you actually have authority. I don't believe that you are the creator of the earth. I want to be the one that has the authority. And being God is a tough weight to carry. Even for our own lives. We can't do it. We can't hold that kind of weight. 19 through 23 describes when Moses goes to uh, the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said, he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn his wrath from destroying them. So immediately they set out to create something to worship. And the psalmist is again reminding them of their offense against God. That it, like, it took almost no time at all. Here God does this great work after great work after great work for them. And almost immediately they're like, yeah, but what has he done for me lately? Like two seconds ago lately. 24 through 27 is a reference to the 12 spies. So as they're getting closer to the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised them, they send out 12 spies. The 12 spies come back, and 10 of them give this report, that the land is awesome. We would be, um, it would be amazing to live in this land, but the people are fearsome, and they're going to kill us. Two of the other spies say, you know what, the land is awesome. It would be amazing to live in this land. And yes, the people are fearsome, but God is greater. So that's what happens, right? Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. So God, they rebel, they don't believe, and God uses other nations to discipline them. 28 through 31 is going to be during the time in the wilderness, and they begin to conform to the Moabites' culture. And they begin to worship the Moabites' God. And sin becomes so blatant that one takes a man, sorry, that a man actually brings that blatant sin right into the middle of the camp, right in front of Moses, as if a smack in the face to Moses. And remember, Moses is just the mouthpiece for God. So a smack to the face to Moses is like a smack to the face to God. Then they yoked themselves to the bell of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. So what Phineas does is he takes a spear, and this man who is committing this horrible act in the middle of the camp, right in front of Moses, Phineas takes the spear and he pins the man to the ground with it. As if to say, this cannot stand anymore. You have crossed the line. Enough is enough. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Because he took a stand. 
Now there will be some people in the Israelite camp that loved to worship the Moabites. They loved to bring in that culture and let that culture influence them. But they were commanded as a people to be righteous. And because Phineas was able to stand in God's truth, it was counted him as righteousness from generation to generation, still talking about him to this day and his righteous act. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. So this time it was Moses. It wasn't just Phineas that said, enough is enough. Here it's Moses. 34 through 38 is going to be the conquest. Now remember, before we get into the conquest, that God gave the Canaanites 400 years to repent. How long have we been a nation? He gave them 400 years to repent. And now he's going to use Israel as the tool of his discipline. But Israel rebels and joins in the same wicked deeds. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. So one of the ways that they adopted the Canaanite culture was that they were sacrificing their children. They've done archaeological digs in Jericho, and they've uncovered tens of thousands of babies that were sacrificed. Israel joins in. And once again, committing acts that are offensive to God, that are a stench to God. 40 through 43 describes the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a pattern that goes like this. Israel rebels, and the, one of the main themes that you just read over and over again is that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. This isn't a compliment. Sometimes people read that and think, oh, wow, that's awesome. There's freedom. This is actually an insult, because what they're doing that's right in their own eyes is wicked against God. If everyone does what's right in their own eyes, it's nothing but chaos. It produces chaos in the land. Could you imagine if America, in America we just did what was right in our own eyes? Some people would drive the opposite way on the freeway. Some people would do much worse. But it would be chaos. And that's what we read in the book of Judges, that everybody doing what's right in their own eyes produces chaos. So everyone does what's right in their own eyes. God raises up a nation to discipline them. They repent. God delivers them. They rebel, and this happens over and over and over again. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under the power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and brought low through their iniquity. So then 44 through 46 outlines that despite all of their failures, the psalmist reminds them that God is true 
to his promise. And this is the hope for Israel in exile. They can trust God. At the right time, he will act and deliver them. Nevertheless, he, took, he looked upon their distress. When he heard their cry, for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. So you're in exile. And things look pretty hopeless. And this psalmist writes to say, number one, we need to confess. We've been rebellious against God. We're only getting what we deserve. And yet, when we confess, we also see that God stays faithful and true to His Word, and He will deliver us at the right time. And that leads us to 47. Because they have this hope, the psalmist cries out, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. So he's able to cry out because he knows that there is hope that although sin has put up a barrier between them and God, when they confess and they repent, that barrier is dropped. We come all too often ready to cry out to God because we don't like the consequences of our sin. We're angry and so we yell and we totally disrupt the relationships that we love. And when those relationships are disrupted, we get mad at God and we cry out to God like, fix this relationship that I totally trashed, but we forget to mention that it was us that totally trashed it. So we love to plead to God to save us from the consequences of our sin and yet we oftentimes forget to confess that it is our sin that has put us in that situation. That it is our own rebelliousness. Sin is a heavy weight to carry. It may not seem like it at first, but it's tiring and it wears you down. But the good news is, God has already taken the weight of your sin. He's already paid the price. Because of our sin, our sin separates us from God. And that is that heavy burden that we carry. But Jesus came and He paid the price for our sin, and He's willing to take that burden. All it takes is to put your faith and trust in God and in order to put that faith and trust in God, one of the first steps is to say, God, I confess I have been offensive to you. I deserve death. I deserve that heavy burden because I have rebelled against you and I have been a horribly stench-filled person against you. And as you do that, He lifts the burden of your sin. You don't have to go around carrying that heavy weight anymore. Have you been holding on to a sin that's weighing you down? The first step is confession. Confess it to God. And what's amazing, as we confess our sin, God brings healing. 
that weight can mess you up. If I only held this weight in one hand for the rest of my life, my whole body would be off, right? I'd be crooked. It would bring a lot of pain. When I let go of that burden, God brings healing. And that brings us to verse 48. And what better way to close it than, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you bear our burdens. That our sin isn't too heavy for you to carry. And Lord, help us to take our sins seriously. To realize how stench-filled it really is. How truly offensive we have been to you. And yet you love us in such a way that you can bring reconciliation. That you can bring back a perfect relationship. And we pray that you would help us to take that sin seriously. And to take it to you and confess it. Knowing that whatever we have done. You can heal us, and you can bring joy back to our lives. In your name we pray, amen.